Praise the Lord. I'm a blessed man. Now, now many men can say they have a mother-in-law who says nice things about them. <laughs> Amen. So let's pray today. Father, we just thank you for your word. And we ask the Spirit of God that you would speak to us, that you would reveal truth to us, Lord. We are hungry. We want to hear from you, Lord. We want to partake. We want to eat of the bread of heaven because you are the bread of life, Lord. And we thank you for speaking to us today in Jesus' name. If you could stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. And we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 21 together. And um, they're going to have it on the screen there for you. And uh, so let's read it together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, come on guys, you got it on the screen? Hallelujah. No. Okay, it's there? Okay. Let's read it together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Amen. The Bible says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. You may be seated. The title of the message today is One of Us. And I want to start today by uh, reading the lyrics of a song that goes all the way back to 1995. And it says, if God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all of his glory, what would you ask if you had just one question? And yeah, yeah, God is great. Yeah, God is good. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it, seeing it meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and the prophets. And yea, God is great. Yea, God is good. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Just trying to make his way home like back up to heaven all alone. Nobody calling on the phone except for the Pope, maybe in Rome. <laughs> That's the song, One of Us, uh, by Joan Osborne back in 1995. Can you imagine that was 26 years ago? I still remember it like it was yesterday. And um, I never liked that song, uh, incidentally. I, I was a relatively new believer. I got saved in 1991, so it was about maybe three or four years uh, I'd been saved. Um, but even then, I felt it was cynical, aggressive, and certainly a little disrespectful to God. But you know, I heard it recently uh, when I was uh, out and about, and I just heard it in a new light. Um, you know, something just went off in my spirit. Because, uh, you know, at the time, like I said, when I was first saved, I, I felt it was, like I said, a little cynical and rather unfair in how it seeks to, you know, misrepresent uh, God as uncaring and disconnected from us. But you know what, I believe this song gives expression to the frustration that exists in the hearts of many who, while they might not know God, are desperately trying to make sense of a world where at times people really struggle and suffer. You know, a world where tragedies happen, accidents happen, little kids get sick and people die before their time or people struggle, you know, in the ordinary things of life, you know, such as making a living or finding their way in the world. And while we all know that John 10.10 10 says that Satan is the one who comes to rob, to kill and to destroy, the world doesn't. And therefore, you know, they simply look or, or, or they simply see the, the collateral damage all around them and naturally assume that God is either directly involved or, as this song suggests, is somehow passive or disinterested in the sufferings and struggles of mankind. 
So you could say that, you know, this secular song uh, gives us some valuable insight um, into the way that many people in, in the world think, many of the people that we are trying to reach for Christ. Because, you know, the, the, the lyrics present us with this uh, image of a very ordinary, mundane scene of a person, uh, you know, weary from a day's work, on a bus, stuck in evening traffic, simply trying to get home. And so this song presents us with this idea, what if God was one of us? Then he might actually understand our predicament because it's easy for God, you know, to, to speak to us from, uh, you know, his isolated uh, perfection and holiness in heaven. But we're just trying to make it through the day or the week or maybe even the moment. And so you could say the song accuses God of, of being unfair and not understanding what it's like for us as mere mortals. You know, it's interesting that the singer of this song wanted to be a priest as a child, but she was told that tradition didn't allow this for women. And so as an adult, the singer declared that while she was a spiritual person, that she was skeptical of large-scale organized religion. Well, join the club because... I believe Christ died to give us far more than simply, you know, a denominational uh, affiliation or a religion or, or a title. And, you know, it's sad that at times Christians settle for this very thing because, you know, certainly while there are many people who reject the inconsistencies of religion as they see it, and again, many of us who've been, been here in Ireland in the 80s and 90s and the various revelations of scandals and sex abuse and, you know, terrible, terrible things that were done um, in the name of religion, you know, uh, and, and, you know, I, I think it was really evil the way that, that you know, these, these, these priests were moved from one parish to the other rather than, you know, grasping the net, you know, the nettle and, uh, you know, dealing with the issue. Instead, they just pushed it off. And, and so child after child in this nation was sexually abused. And, you know, as a minister, I've, I've spoken to people in their 60s and 70s weeping like babies because of what was done to them as children. So, you know, I understand. Uh, you know, the terrible things have been done in the name of religion, and yet notwithstanding that, when you think of things from an eternal perspective, there are those who reject the inconsistencies and hypocrisy of religion as they see it, and yet sadly, if they do not discover the truth about Christ and his cross and his call on their lives, they'll be lost forever to an eternal hell. And I think that is a terrible thing to contemplate. And this is why as the church, we must all be soul winners. That's why I'd encourage you. You know, Bible school isn't for you to just get a whole lot of knowledge to inflate your head. It is so that you're equipped to be an effective minister of Jesus Christ. Amen. So that you're equipped to reach your world with the gospel of Jesus because it is the truth. And so clearly, there is a lot at stake. So maybe we need to take a moment to listen to what is being said, even if it is a little difficult, a little painful for us to hear. Because in this song, I hear both a question and a, and a cry. A question, why? If God is real, then why is there evil in this world? If God is real, then why is there so much suffering and pain? You know, the most common question I got on the street is, if God is real, why do bad things happen? Why did my grandmother die of cancer or my father die when I was young? A question and a cry. A cry for God to intervene in our lives. For him to come and fix our fallen, broken, the hurting world. A, a cry for justice and fairness and righteousness and truth to prevail. You know, I think it's ironic when people, you know, say, well, if God is a God of love, then he doesn't judge. Just try and tell that to a Man U supporter when they're playing Liverpool and the referee gives a judgment that may, seems to be in favor of the other team. People get all mad. You know why? Because we have instinctively a desire for fairness and justice. Now, you know, just look at how people react when a judge sets a pedophile free on some technicality. You see, instinctively, we know there is right and wrong, and instinctively, we are drawn to justice. And therefore, it's rather hypocritical for us to demand justice in this life and yet reject it in the next no, we will all face justice in eternity. And this is why you must be saved. This is why you must know Jesus as your Savior. 
Because there is nothing that will enable you to escape the justice of God. There is no amount of good works or philanthropy or virtue or ability or talent that will help you to escape the fires of hell. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Could somebody say thank you, Jesus, for your blood? A question and a cry. A cry for God to move in our lives. A cry for redemption. You see, man instinctively yearns for this. 14 years ago, I was on North Earl Street and I had an experience. I had an experience that was impressed um, on, my, on my memory, I, I, I believe, forever. Uh, I was just after preaching on the street. There was a small crowd there gathered. And a man came up to me and stood right in front of me. He got right in front of my face, and I quickly noticed that he was shaking in anger. I was nearly always alone on those early years um, uh, of our church. It wasn't difficult. There was about five of us in the church, and I was counting my wife and myself and my little babies. But, um, you know, it, 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 was, it was challenging times. Like I said, we had about five members, but... You know, this man was seething with anger. And uh, I said to myself, you know, I, I said to myself, this guy's going to punch me in the head. He stood inches from my face and he said, you talk of a God of love. My baby son died yesterday. What do you have to say about that? And I, you know, I simply responded. And I know it was the Holy Spirit that enabled me to respond in that moment because I didn't even stop to think. And I immediately responded, I don't know what happened to your son, but I do know that God didn't do it. And you will see that boy again. Amen. And when I said that, it, it, you would have thought I just punched him in the stomach. And, and he, just, he just stepped back and he started, this, this grown man, he started weeping. And he says, I, I, I can't talk to you. And, and he, just, he just walked away. And you know, I still often think about that man and the pain that he felt in that moment. And I believe that, you know, something that I said just, just pierced his heart. Just this idea that one day he would see that child again. But also the thought that, you know what, God wasn't the one who deliberately caused this to happen. Yes, bad things happen, but I think it's wrong for us to assume that God is the one behind it. And sadly, religion has perpetuated this idea through the centuries. You know, through a, 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 you know, a twisting of the concept of sovereignty, that, that God is behind everything. Because many times Christians don't understand, you know, the, the principle is there's not only a force of good, there's also a force of evil. And it is Satan is the one who is robbing, killing, and destroying. And so, anyway, uh, you know, I understand why he reacted that way when he heard me speak of a God of love on the street. Because it's hard to think of love when all you feel is loss. Again, a question and a cry. The question why? If God is real and God is good, then why is there so much evil in this world? Why do children suffer or little babies die? Why is there war? Why is there famine? Why is there injustice? Why do people get cancer? Why do some of the people we love die before their time? Hands up if you lost a loved one who clearly died, you know, far too young. Anybody here tonight can say, I lost a loved one who died, you know, far too young. Well, you know, I, 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 I can certainly say that because, you know, you look at life and, and to be honest with you, at times it seems like those who deserve to live die and those who deserve to die live. You know, I think of my auntie Betsy. She got cancer um, when she was quite young and, uh, you know, my auntie Betty, she was a... She was a force of nature. I used to, you know, my mom had eight kids, so I used to often spend two or three months in my grandmother's house. My mom, I don't think she even noticed I was gone. Um, she was so busy, you know, just juggling everything. But I used to go to my grandmother's, and I tell you, I was treated like a king. Every day, my grandmother used to get on her bike with her little basket on the front, and she'd go uptown to buy meat for the, for the dinner. But she'd also buy me a, a comic, whether the Dandy or the Beano or, you know, any of these others. She'd get me a comic and a bag of sweets. 
There's a reason why I have 17 fillings today. Um, but, but you know what? I loved it. I loved it. I used to just live like a king, man. And she used to send me to bed at night with a, with a, 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 you know, a glass of lilt or, a, a, you know, 7-Up or something like that, you know. I, never, I don't think I brushed my teeth for two months at a time, you know. And, um, but, but, but there was different times in the Ireland in the 80s. How many of you know? I mean, my mom had eight kids. There was three or four toothbrushes, and they were communal. You just decided, what color am I going to use today? <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyway, man, if I saw my auntie's car coming down, there was a long driveway. My, aunt, my, my, my grandmother lived on a farm. But if I saw my aunt come, there'd be a, a, a cloud of dust behind her in the car. She'd come in. I'd be sitting down watching Sesame Street. She used to come in and said, you're a bit old to be doing that now. Come on. She'd throw me out of the chair. Next thing I know, I'd have a, a, you know, a, a bottle of Mr. Sheen in one hand and a Hoover in the other. I'm like, you know, eight or ten years of age. I was like... You know, what meaneth this? And, um, but she was, uh, she was a real gore. You know, I remember my mom was, uh, you know, some people throw things out, other people hoard things. My, my, my Aunt Betsy wasn't like that. She used to love throwing things out. But my mom, my mom used to have stuff on top of the fridge about that high, just all sorts of little bits and pieces that accumulate, you know. I remember one, one day my Aunt Betsy came into the, into the kitchen. She got a black bag. She put it right next to the fridge, and she just went, you know, I'm telling you, my mom was manifesting when she came home because my mom didn't throw out anything, you know. And um, so, but anyway, she, my, my aunt was only 37. She got cancer and uh, she had three young children. And uh, I remember as, as a young boy, I was, I was on my own in the house with her. She was in my grandmother's house and uh, she was trying to get better, but she had lost a lot of weight and she wasn't able to eat. And uh, I, I remember she, she, she was trying to eat this, this little yogurt. And uh, I, like I said, I was maybe 10 or 12 years of age. And um, she, she, she said, John, will you go get the bowl? She, I, I went and I got the bowl and, and she got sick in it. And then she, she was too weak to get, even get out of the chair. And she was such, a, you know, such an active person. And uh, I remember she asked me to go empty it and wash it out. And she was so, she was so quiet and so gentle as she did it. And, uh, you, know, my, my, you know, I really feel it's like my, my childhood ended in that moment because suddenly reality struck me like a freight train. And, and I knew that, that, you know, unless she got a miracle, that, that she, wasn't going to, she wasn't going to make it. And, and sadly, she, she died. But, you know, before she died, she got saved. And she started going to prayer meetings, and she was believing for a miracle. And uh, she said to my sister, you know, when, when I get better, I'm going to open my house, and I'm going to tell everybody about the Word of God. And, uh, you know, I, I know that she prayed for me. And, uh, you know, uh, m my mom took in her, her youngest child, who was only maybe nine months old or a year old at the time. And, uh, you know, sometimes things happen that we don't understand why, okay? Um, but, but, you know, we know God is good. And, you know, I know that she faced death with courage and dignity. And, you know, what? I, 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 like I said, at times we, we have those, those questions that we, we don't understand. But, but, but like I said, all of us, we hear a question and we hear a cry. A cry for God to intervene in our lives. You know, a cry for him, like I said, you hear that song, and you he I, I didn't hear it 30 years ago or 25 years ago, but I hear it now. I, I hear that cry, even though it's expressed through frustration. You know, that cry for God to come and, and heal my body. God, come and save my marriage. You know, God, come and bring peace to my mind. You know, come and, 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 and you know... Change the situation in my home. Deliver me from this addiction. Save my child from that habit or from that gang. Because you know what? We've all heard the question and we've all heard the cry. The fact is, many of us hear it on a daily basis in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, on social media, uh, you know, in our magazines, our movies, our books. People asking why. If there is a God, uh, and, and I believe there is, then why did he leave this happen? You know, the question, is there a God who cares and understands our predicament as flesh and blood? Um, you know, and, and this question, what if there was a God who was one of us? who walked among us as a man, who could relate to us, who could understand our, our, our struggles and our temptations and our pains and our sorrows, uh, who could understand what, what life on earth is like. Job chapter 9 verse 32 uh, in the Berean Bible, you know, it presents this age-old problem. And um, uh, I'm going to read it. Thank you so much, Jazzy. Uh, and it says, 
for he is not a man like me that I can answer him, that we can take each other to court, nor is there a mediator between us to lay his hand upon us both. Let him remove his rod from me so that his terror will no longer frighten me. Then I would speak without fear of him, but as it is, I'm on my own. But as it is, I'm on my own. And sadly, this sums up the state of unregenerate mankind. Questions, but no answers. Problems, but no solutions. Achievement, but no fulfillment. And this is why uh, Solomon cried out in Ecclesiastes 1.4, I've seen, seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. It says all is vanity. A man who had it all, who tried it all, who had been there and done that, he summarizes life by saying all is vanity. Because again, uh, you know, Solomon in that moment was speaking as, as an unsaved man and as, as a person not serving God. Because life disconnected from God and faith has no meaning or purpose. And this is why Job cries out in frustration but as it is, I am on my own. And it is this inescapable sense of loneliness and isolation and, and you know, disconnectedness that plagues uh, mankind, that plagues our generation in particular. This inner void that no amount of wealth or fame or accomplishment or technology or pleasure can fill. You know, clearly there is a yearning in the heart of man for answers. And yet mankind is conscious, uh, you know, of the fact that, that, that they are sinners separated from a holy God and, and without any means of approach to him. And so their hearts condemn them. And this is what Job is giving expression to. This idea, I'm on my own. There's, there's, there's nothing I can do to connect with this this God. And so, uh, and, and yet at the same time, there's something on the inside of every man and woman that longs to know their creator, to know the peace and the forgiveness and the meaning that our hearts long for. This is why people try different religions. Don't condemn people that are, you know, going from one belief to the other. Uh, it, you know, it's not that they're so picky um, or deliberately ignoring the truth. It's just that they're looking for answers and they instinctively know they're running out of time. Listen, none of us are here forever. And this is why, you know, as the precious people of God, we must play our part in taking the truth to our generation. We must go, like the Bible says, here I am, send, send me, because you know what? We have a message of life and liberty through Christ, but we do not have forever. Acts 5 and verse 17, it says, Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. You see, there is a new life that we can have through faith in Jesus Christ. Because we have heard the question and we have heard the cry. Amen? And we have found the answer. See, we haven't just heard the question and the cry. We have found the answer. Because this is exactly what happened in Christ. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory. The glories of the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. See this is the answer to the cry that is found in that song. The incarnation declares that God was one of us. Luke chapter 1. Uh, sorry Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Here speaking of the birth of Christ. And it says, an angel of the Lord, verse 20, appeared to them in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and you will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hallelujah. The very name Jesus means he saves. He is a savior. His name will be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so this was done that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Yeah. Hallelujah. The very name of Jesus declares that God is with us. God with us, not against us. God with us, not God out to get us. And this is what the writer of this song and so many others have missed. Because Christ walked among us as a man. He felt what you feel. He stood where you stand. He faced what you face. He understands even when nobody else does. Even when you don't understand yourself. 
Hebrews 4 and verse 14, we have not a savior who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in all points like as we are and yet without sin. Hallelujah. And because he experienced everything you may face, he can have compassion on us. And because he is one of us, firstly, he understands. Christ understands. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the life of man. You see, Christ took upon Himself flesh. The Word was made flesh, verse 14, and dwelt amongst us. He was fully God, and yet fully man. Colossians 1 and verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You can't see God, but you can see Jesus. That's why the Bible says we see Jesus. If you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. Because Jesus said, I don't do anything except what the Father has told me to do. Hebrews 1 and verse 1, God at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed the heir of all things through whom he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. The Bible says that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. You know, that, that, that comes from, you know, back in Roman times when they would seal a letter, they would pour the hot wax, and the procurator would press his ring, which had the insignia, into that ring, and the express image of the ring was now on the wax. Well, Jesus is the express image of God, so if you want to know what God is like, you don't have to wonder. You can just look at Jesus and see what God is like. You see, Christ is the express image of the Father, and as part of the Trinity, he is one with the Godhead, and yet he took upon himself flesh. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 talks about this. It says, um, Philippians 2 and verse 6, it says, um, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became uh, obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore also God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, Christ knows, he understands what it was like to be human. Our, under, our Savior understands what it was like to be tired. He prayed through the night, and at times he was so tired he slept on a boat. He was thirsty. He asked the Samaritan woman for a drink. He was hungry. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. He understood what it was like to be misunderstood. A hostile crowd attempted to throw him off a cliff. Even his own family misunderstood him and wanted to lock him up. Uh, he understood what it was like to be frustrated. I mean, the disciples weren't exactly perfect students, you know, and I think all of us can take courage because they were ambitious, they were dull of understanding, and at times they completely missed what he was saying to them. Luke chapter 9 and verse 43. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand his saying, and it was hidden from them. So they did not perceive it, and they're afraid to ask him about this saying. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus just told them that he was gonna be betrayed, that he was gonna to go to the cross, and these guys are arguing about who's gonna be the greatest. Jesus knew what it was like to be angry. Luke chapter four and verse, uh, Luke chapter, uh, sorry, Mark chapter three, verse one. Uh, he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there with a withered hand. He watched him, and they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that he might accuse him. And he said to the men with the withered hand, step forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, 
So here the Bible says Jesus was angry, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. So again, Christ was grieved at the hardness of the Pharisees towards the suffering of ordinary people. He was angry at those who cynically turned his father's house into a business. The Bible says he went in with whips, he overturned the tables and said, make not my house, my father's house, a house of merchandise. He knew what it was to be tempted. Luke chapter 4 tells us about how Satan literally offered Jesus the whole world on a plate if he would only bow down and worship before him. You see, Satan offered Christ the crown without the cross, but Jesus resisted the temptation. Jesus knew what it was like to be pressurized in the Garden of Eden. He was under so much mental pressure, anguish, and torment uh, before the cross that he literally shed blood from his forehead. He knew what it was like to be abandoned. Mark chapter 14 and verse 50 says, And so all the disciples forsook him and fled. Every one of them ran away. He knew what it was like to be rejected by his own people and handed over to the Romans to be crucified. He knew what it was to physically hurt. He was falsely accused, lied about, betrayed, judged, mocked, beaten, spit on, whipped, and nailed to a rough wooden cross. You know, no man or woman would be able to point their finger at God in eternity and say, God, you did not understand. Because he knows. He faced what you faced. He felt what you feel. He stood where you stand. Jesus understands. You see, he felt the sting of betrayal. He felt the punches on his beard, he, he, his beard being torn out, his face being punched. He even felt what it was like to die. Mark chapter 15 and verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, laba shabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 37, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. You see, darkness not only covered the land at the cross, darkness covered his soul. It was dark on the cross. He was rejected by God and forsaken by men. You know, Psalm 18 and verse uh, 4 to 6 talks about how Jesus suffered the terrors of death. You know, the terrors of death gripped Christ in that moment as he was breathing his last. Hebrews 2 and 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made uh, lower than the angels for a little while, not crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. The new living. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Christ tasted death on our behalf. He understands our condition. Hebrews 2.14, now since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him that holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You know that word fear is the word phobos, where we get phobia from. Jesus experienced fear like no man or woman ever experienced fear before. Hallelujah. That word phobos means panic, fear, flight, or terror. I look at the cross and I'm reminded that I matter. I'm reminded that I'm loved. That God loves people. I look at the cross and I find hope, peace, forgiveness, and understanding. Because the cross tells us that we serve a God who understands suffering, having suffered himself. He understands Isaiah 53 and 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, the man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like those from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. God's word version says he was despised and rejected by people. He was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And if you're hurting today, know that Christ felt it before you. He understands John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Why did he weep when he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead? Because he was identifying with us in our mortality, in our suffering, in our shortcomings, in our failures. He identified with us as human beings and he wept on our behalf. 
Hallelujah. Jesus understands. He identifies with us in our sorrow and in our loss. He understands our frailty and he has compassion on us in our pain. Firstly, he understands. Secondly, he loves. Because he is one of us, he understands. Because he is one of us, he loves. He not only knows and understands our weakness, he loves us in spite of them. Revelations 1.5, unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Do you know that God loved you before he washed you? He loved you when you were out there doing what you were doing. You know, the Bible says that God so loved the world. I don't think we take enough time to contemplate the love of God for sinful mankind. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrates his love towards us. And that while we're still sinners, Jesus died for us. When we had nothing to offer God, still he took our place on the cross. Hallelujah. Now we know what love is. John, 1 John 3 and verse 16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Do you know that Jesus laid down his life for you? The cross is testament to God's everlasting, unconditional, undying love for you and for me. Turn to your neighbor today and say, you are loved. Mother Teresa, the most terrible poverty is loneliness and the feeling of being unloved. Because there is no app you can download, or career you can pursue, or label you can wear, or address you can buy, or purchase you can make, or accomplishment you can achieve that will make you feel loved. And in a world that increasingly acts like people are somehow disposable, we should be grateful that we serve a God who doesn't give up on us. Amen. We serve a God who doesn't give up on us. A God who loves us and believes in us. Because the cross proclaims God's forgiveness and mercy and love. It declares the price has been paid and that we are free. Luke 23. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Luke chapter 7 and verse 18. I want to do this message in one part, so just stick with me. Luke chapter 7 and verse 18. Here talking about John the Baptist. And it says, Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? At that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered, Go tell John the things you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see, a reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see, a man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled, live in luxury, are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Here we have the story of John. You know, clearly John was discouraged. And he didn't understand why he was left abandoned in Herod's prison. So here's the general timeline. And I need to move quickly. But it says God reveals, uh, you know, God reveals his purpose through the angel Gabriel. Announcing the supernatural birth of John to his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. It was a supernatural birth. Not a, um, uh, you know, the, obviously there was a mother and father involved. But, it, uh, you know, it wasn't a virgin birth. But it was a supernatural birth. You know, because both of them were old and well past it. At least in regards to having children. John grows up and is led by the Spirit to live in the desert uh, alone where he seeks God and uh, in God's time uh, is revealed to Israel. Vast crowds of people come to John and he calls Israel to repent and be baptized, thus preparing the way for Jesus Christ. And in the same way, we must prepare our hearts because Jesus is returning. We must prepare our hearts and our homes for the return of Christ. We must prepare our hearts for revival because this is not how it ends. 
Everybody walking around fearful of each other, locked in their homes, you know, screaming instructions to their gardener through the window. That is not how it's going to end. I believe it's going to end with a great revival. A great harvest of souls are going to come to Christ. So anyway, he's given this glorious revelation that Jesus is the long-awaited Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, clearly, John is God's man of the hour. He's surrounded by multitudes who hang on his every word. He even has his own followers. And then John baptizes Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. And ironically, from that moment on, his ministry starts to wane in influence. His, his star begins to dim. And yes, John graciously accepts even this part as God's sovereign plan. You know, John is a humble man. In verse 20, when the disciples came and said everybody was going to Jesus, he simply responds by saying, he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Hallelujah. That's the New Living Version. You know, uh, John 1 talks about how John loses many of his disciples to Jesus, and after he rebukes Herod for taking his brother Philip's, uh, uh, for, taking, for Philip taking his brother's wife, uh, John is thrown into prison. This was a very brave thing because Herod was not a person to mess with. He was not a God-fearing man. He'd ex executed his own sons out of fear that they would supplant his position on the throne. Uh, Luke chapter 3, 18 to 20. So again, uh, John really, it, it was very brave. I've heard some ministers say, oh, well, you know, John should have kept his mouth shut and said nothing. Listen, Esther could have said nothing, but she, you know, the Bible says, surely you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Yeah, we can all play it safe and follow the golden rule, which is cover your rear end and never say anything contentious or never say anything that will cause people to be offended. But you know, life wouldn't be very fun then, would it? And we certainly wouldn't be obedient to God. We must obey God irrespective of the consequences. And this is what John did. And so John ends up becoming a jailbird. And his many friends desert or distance themselves from him. And soon his followers have left him except for a handful. You know, things go full circle and John ends up the same way as he started in the desert alone. But unfortunately, things are about to get even worse because Philip's wife, Herodias, is plotting at that very moment to take his life and he will end up with his head on a silver platter surrounded by, in Herod's palace, by the generals and the VIPs and the socialites and the influencers of the day going, ugh, in Matthew chapter 14. You know, what a sad and ignominious end for this mighty prophet of God. And of course, Again, uh, if you look at things from an eternal perspective, those people are most likely in hell and John is in heaven. So again, remember, eternity will, will reveal, um, you know, what truly is failure or success. And so John asked this question, are you the Christ? Again, John's core revelation was behold the Lamb of God. And now he's in this place because he's discouraged. And he asked, are you the Christ? You know, Jesus could have taken great offense at this question, but he didn't. He simply heard the cry of a man who was hurting. And instead of rebuking John, he reminds John of the signs and the wonders that testified to his deity. But he doesn't just stop there. Instead of accusing and criticizing John, as many believers would have done in that situation, he brags on him. And he talks about he's the greatest prophet that's ever lived. And this is the man who's asking Jesus, are you the Christ? And, you know, I thank God that Jesus Christ sees us at our worst and still believes the best. He is a lover and he is a lifter. He is not an accuser. And some of us need to remember that. Revelation 12 and verse 10 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. It's so important you're not doing the devil's work. Because as far as I can see, there's no shortage of Christians. You know, these keyboard warriors, that's all they do all day long is critique and criticize and condemn instead of getting off their rear ends and doing something for Jesus. You know, there's, there's no shortage of, 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 of people like that. I remember we had Rodney Hart Brown in this church a few years ago. We had over a thousand people came, people who were hungry for a miracle, hungry for a touch of God. And I know the Spirit of God may move through him in, in unusual ways at times. But, you know, I was shocked at the, at the vitriol and the, and the ag aggression of people coming up to this service online, you know, labeling me a heretic and an apostate uh, for, for having him in this place by people 
people who I thought were my friends, and I, I soon realized that they were not, and I, I really came to the conclusion, you know, don't have near as many friends as you think you do. Um, but, you know, listen, there's no shortage of heresy hunters out there. Often they have no fruit of the spirit in their own lives, just criticism and accusations, sitting on the fence and criticizing, you know, those who are involved in the, in the heat of the battle. And, and again, it's easy to criticize, but you know what? We have to be about our father's business, amen? And, and you know, Jude chapter 12 talks about people like that. People who, who, all they care about is their own exalted opinion. Jude 12 refers to them as clouds without rain. You know, uh, in the beginning, I used to explain to my, myself and go through all sorts of protracted explanations that were going nowhere and discussions that were just wasting my time. You know, I, I've come to the place of realizing you just ignore them or block them. You know, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 3. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work, so I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? You know what Nehemiah was simply saying? He said, you know what? I'm too busy for your drama. I'm not going to be drawn into your, into your, uh, into your world. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be drawn into this because I'm too busy doing something. Amen? And, and so what he was saying is, I can't afford to lose my focus by getting involved in petty arguments. And you know, to, the, to be honest, you know, much of the criticism and, and hatred and accusation I've received over the years has not been from an unsaved world but rather, that we're trying to reach, but rather it's from other Christians who seem to have nothing else to do other than accuse and criticize. Amen. And you, you know, Jesus could have taken what John said in that light. He could have been offended, but he didn't. He knew it wasn't really criticism, but rather John was speaking from a place of hurt and frustration. You see, John had been left in prison when it was he who was the one who had announced Jesus's ministry. And he was wondering, why am I being left in prison when Jesus is out there, out and about, you know, ministering to people and seeing all these things happening? I'm sure John could have thought, well, maybe I, I should be Jesus's right-hand man because it was I who revealed Jesus, you know, to the nation. But you know what? He didn't understand. He couldn't be part of the new wine that God was pouring out because John was a full stop so to speak, at the end of a dispensation. Hebrews 8 and 13, in that he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So John was part of the old covenant. You know, uh, Jesus said new wine can't be put into new wineskins. You see, Jesus understood this at the time, but John didn't. But Jesus didn't condemn John because he understands even when we don't. And let's, like I said earlier, there's things we experience in this life we don't understand, but you know what? We can trust in the fact that God does. And, and Jesus continues to believe in John even when John doesn't believe in him, even if it was only for a brief moment of doubt and discouragement. So Jesus doesn't condemn John. Rather, he praises John and acknowledges the significance of his calling and of his ministry and his contribution to the move of God because the new is always built upon the old. He praised John because he loved and believed in John. But it's not just John. He loves and he believes in us. Amen. I love the way, like I said, he sees us at our worst and still continues to believe the best. What a Savior. He is one of us. Hebrews, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 7 in the Amplified. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes and is ever ready to believe the best of every person. Do you do that? Do you believe the best of people? Because Jesus does. You know, 1 John 4, 8 and 16, God is love. Our God is love and he loves us. Even when we fail, even when we fall short, he loves us. Even in our darkest moments and in our toughest times. You know, Luke 22, 60, Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus spoke to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is the moment that if YouTube and social media was a thing back then, would have received probably billions of views because it was the very moment when a promising career was destroyed, when a reputation was left in shatters. I mean, you know, the headlines would have said, the rock crumbles, promising young preacher abandons his master in his time of need and denies him, not once, not twice, but three times. You see, it was all over for Peter. He would never be asked to speak at a conference. He would never be the one to write a best-selling book. He would never 
never be respected again as a leader. And yet, as great as Peter's fall was, the love and mercy of Christ was greater. And again, I don't know what you've done or where you've been, but I know this, the love of God is greater. The love of God is greater than your past. The love of God is greater than your pain. The love of God is greater than your dysfunction. People can put labels on you, but God sees you for who you can be as opposed to who you are. And this is why Mark 16 and 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter, and Peter, Jesus includes Peter, the one who is disqualified. And Jesus anoints Peter to preach the very first sermon that is preached in all time. Think about all the millions and millions of sermons that have been preached through the years. Who did God choose to be the first one to deliver that message? A man who had denied him and failed him. John 21, 17, the third time he said to him, Simon, summon of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Christ asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. You see, G Christ, Jesus believes in us even when no one else does. You see, love does not let go. Jesus does not let go. Peter's, you know, actions had disqualified him, but Christ's love restored him. And his love is greater than our failures. And his mercy is greater than our mess. And just as he saw beyond John's failures and Peter's failures and lovingly lifts and restores them, so too he loves you and sees you for what you can be and not for what you or others may think that you are. You see, because he is one of us, he understands. Because he's one of us, he loves. Just give me five minutes and I'm finished. Because he's one of us, he lives. John 14 and verse 18. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. You see, these are dark days. These are dark days. And we may face very challenging times in the days to come, but we do not face them alone. The incarnation tells us that God took on himself flesh to die in our place and that in rising from the dead, he arose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. You see, because he arose, we have hope. We have hope in a living savior, even in a dying world. You know, John chapter five and verse 24. I love this verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 47 of chapter 6, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. A number of years ago, I sat by the friend, uh, a dear friend of mine who was dying. I was believing for a miracle. Um, but I also knew, looking at him, that if he didn't receive a miracle, he wasn't going to make it. And you know, it's a strange feeling being with somebody who knows that they are not long for this world. You know, it's interesting. They don't want to argue with you about theology. They're not mad at anyone. They're not anxious about money or worrying about what people may think about them. They're not rehearsing grudges or arrogantly talking about how great they are because it's a very sobering and humbling thing to contemplate the fact that you will very soon stand before your creator, the one who gave you breath and give an account for your life because suddenly the things of this life lose their allure. And part of being a pastor is that you're there for people in good times and in bad even as they make that final journey into eternity. And yet, my friend, in spite of his love for Christ and in spite of the fact that he had served the Lord, I saw fear in his eyes. Because you see, our flesh recoils from death. The Bible says it's the last enemy. But as I read my Bible to him, and as I read those very same scriptures that I read to you, and as I read John chapter 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes me, though he might die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? As I read those words to him, I saw that fear and despair leave his face. He was still in pain, but he had found something that was greater than his pain, and that was the promise of God. You see, there is a promise that is greater than your pain. There is something we can connect with that is beyond this life. The, I, the understanding that he lives. And because he lives, like the song goes, I can face tomorrow. 
Because he lives, all fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. As I read these scriptures, I saw peace come upon him. You know, within hours, my friend was in eternity, but I know where he is. I know the word of God ministered to him in his final moments. You know, the great British scientist Michael Faraday was dying. Any of you who have studied chemistry or physics will have come across his works, including Faraday's law. He was asked if he had any, any speculations on life after death. He simply responded, speculations? I have none. I'm resting on certainties. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He was quoting the Apostle Paul, who in his final days, in the light of being beheaded, you know, uh, in Rome, said, uh, for this cause I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep which I've committed to him against that day. We are persuaded that because Christ lives, we can face our end with confidence. The message of the glorious gospel is that not only did Jesus Christ come as a man and die on our behalf on the cross, but that he also rose again from death. The message of the cross isn't just that he died, but that in spite of dying, he still lives. And because he lives, we will live also. We can face life and even face death with confidence because we know Jesus, our Savior, lives. And this is why Job is able to cry out, for I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. That is the message of the gospel. And I know that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, my eyes shall behold and not another. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? You see, defeat does not exist in the vocabulary of a follower of Jesus Christ as the worship group come forward. Because we serve a God who specializes in resurrections. Amen. Listen, your marriage may seem like it's over. Your dream may look like it has died. Your best days may look like they are behind you. Your future may seem sealed, but it is time for God to raise up some dead things in your life. It is time for God to turn things around. It is time for a resurrection because it looked all over when Christ was hanging on that cross. But God, but God, Hallelujah. Mary on that resurrection morning had just one message. He lives. He lives. I tell you, he lives. And because he lives, you live. You see, good things happen on Sunday morning. Amen. Christ was one of us. And he is here with us today. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. He knows you. He understands you. He loves you. And today he is calling you. He is calling you to serve him. He is calling you to trust him. He is calling you to believe in him. Hallelujah. Could you stand to your feet today? Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us today. I know I spoke a little long today, but I, I really wanted to give you this message. It was burning in my heart because the Lord wants you to know He is with you today. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. The Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And so I want to pray with you today. If you've never received Jesus as your Savior, if you do not have that assurance that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, I want to give you an opportunity right now to ask Jesus Christ into your life. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I hope you were able to understand by what I was speaking to you that Christ came to give us so much more than merely a denominational affiliation or a religion or a title. He came that you would have life. I've come that you would have life and have it more abundantly. So today, very quickly, because we've run out of time. If you don't know Jesus, with every head bowed, every eye closed, take a moment to contemplate eternity. Just like my friend, your time will come. Just like my beautiful auntie, your time will come when you leave this life. And what I want to ask you today is, are you ready to face eternity? Are you ready to stand before your Creator? Do you know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord? Do you have peace with God? If you don't, I'm going to pray a very simple prayer with you today. So if you don't have that assurance that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, I want you to put your hand up today. 
If you say, I'm ready to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. Is there anybody here today, you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus Christ? Don't walk out of here today if you're not right with God. If everybody here is a believer, that's fine. But if not, I want to give you an opportunity. God bless you, sir. Anybody else today ready to surrender to Jesus Christ? Come on. I see that hand there. God bless you, sir. Anybody else here today? Come on. This is a precious moment. God loves you and his grace is extended towards you. I've done my best. I've done my best to preach the gospel to you today. But you have to respond. At Christmas, we give gifts, but you know what? You have to receive that gift. Eternal life is a gift you can receive today, but you must respond. You must humble yourself and put your hand up and say, you know what? I need a Savior. Is there anybody else here today ready to surrender your life to Jesus Christ? Thank you, Jesus. Could those two young men have put their hands up? Just come down here. We're going to pray a simple prayer together. Come on. Give them an encouragement as they come. God bless you, brother. God bless you. Amen. Could you stretch your hands towards these young men today? Just look at me today, guys, and say this simple prayer. Things are going to change in your life because you're connecting right now with God's grace. You're going to connect with His mercy, with His love, with His kindness. Everything is going to change. Just pray this simple prayer. Say, Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in my heart that you were born of a virgin, that you lived a perfect life, and that when you died on the cross, you died in my place, bearing my sin and shame. Come into my life, Lord Jesus Christ, and forgive me of my sins. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, people, give a shout of praise. Thank you. God bless you guys. Amen. I, I want to talk to you afterwards. Uh, yeah, Phil, could you, could you just pray with those guys? Somebody else, I want to pray with that young man. Come on, is there another believer here? Just say a prayer for this young man here. Come on. In Jesus' name. Praise you, Lord. While we do so, we're just going to... Could you just lift your hands to the Lord? I believe this can be a wonderful Christmas. It can be the best Christmas you've ever had. There's going to be no strife in our homes, no sickness in our homes. We declare that today in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, for what you're doing in this nation. We believe change is coming to our land. Hallelujah. Praise God. Could we do come, let us adore him. Praise you, Jesus.